Hear the word of God from Genesis, chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. This reading comes from the Common English Bible. Jacob got up during the night, took his two wives, his two women servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River's shallow water. He took them and everything that belonged to him, and he helped them cross the river. But Jacob stayed apart by himself, and a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. When the man saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. The man said, let me go because the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. He said to Jacob, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with men and won. Jacob also asked and said, tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel because I've seen God face to face and my life has been saved. The sun rose as Jacob passed Peniel limping because of his thigh. Therefore, Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle to this day because he grabbed Jacob's thigh muscle at the tendon. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. I'd like for you to raise your hand if you have a perfect relationship with everyone in your family. Any perfect families out there? Uh, all right. Now that we have that out of the way, let's thank God for the book of Genesis because none of those folks would have raised their hand either. An interesting thing happens about a quarter of the way through the book of Genesis. Maybe you noticed it as you were following along in your daily readings. For the first quarter of the book, we hear big stories, cosmic stories, larger-than-life stories about the beginnings of the universe, about the human condition, about God's relationship with human beings. But then somewhere around chapter 12, maybe you noticed this last Sunday when that was our daily reading for the day. The tone of the stories shifts. The genre of the storytelling changes away from the cosmic stories of creation and the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel to the most personal kinds of stories there are. Stories about relationships between people. To put it bluntly, the first quarter of Genesis reads a lot like you were watching the National Geographic channel big stories about the nature and origin of things. But it's almost like once we get to Genesis chapter 12, God picks up the remote and changes the channel, and for the rest of Genesis, we are watching the Lifetime movie of the week, or in some cases, keeping up with the Kardashians. Because here is what we learn in Genesis 
for most of the rest of the 50 chapters in the book, human relationships are messy. You know that. I know that. And Genesis knows it too. People are imperfect, and wrestling with each other is just a part of the human condition. There is not a single person in the entire book of Genesis who comes off even remotely smelling like a rose. Even the four great names in Genesis, the four that we call the patriarchs, the founders of the Judeo-Christian faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, even each of them has their own weaknesses and shadow sides when it comes to relationships with family and loved ones and other people, including Abraham, good old father Abraham, great Abraham himself. He lied to save his own skin by deceiving others about his relationship with his wife, Sarah. And then they gave birth to a son, as you know, Isaac, the great child of promise. Even he wasn't perfect. He was, he was passive. He was indifferent when it came to raising his own family and, and settling disputes with other people. A couple days ago, we read the story about, Jay, about Isaac and the wells, and it was clear in that story he was just passive and, and not a risk taker. And then, of course, we get to Isaac's son, Jacob, the biggest bonehead in the entire book. <laughs> he... He is nothing but a hoodlum, he's a thief, he's a cheater, he's a swindler, he's a trickster. He tricks his own father out of giving him the birthright, the family legacy instead of his older brother Esau. And then, I, and then Jacob gives birth to a son, Joseph, and Joseph and his brothers, that family, they put the fun in dysfunction. I mean, I, I squabbled with my brothers when we were younger, but never once did it occur to any of us to dig a pit in our backyard <laughs> and throw one of us in the pit and sell us off to another household. Talk about a messed up family. In Genesis, there is no perfect person, there is no perfect relationship, there is no perfect family. You might say that imperfection is in the roots of our family tree. And then we get back to Jacob. Jacob is a great story. The story that Sue just read for us is not only fun and important and vivid and imaginative, it is critical. It is pivotal because something happens in this particular story in the book of Genesis that's a game changer. It changes everything. Something is introduced in this story that will forever alter the possibilities of human relationships. For any of us who are in rough relationships or feeling divided at all, something happens in this story with Jacob that is a game changer for you and for me. What is it? Well, we'll find out in a little bit. For now, let's dig a little deeper into the story of Jacob. Literally from the womb, we find out that Jacob is a wrestler. He's a scrapper. We find out that he's one of two twin boys that are wrestling together in their mother Rebecca's womb. Esau is the older brother, but only by a matter of minutes. We find out from Genesis that when Esau was born, being birthed right out of Rebecca's birth canal, Jacob is grabbing onto Esau's ankle, trying to wrestle his way to being born first. 
Now, we don't know how literally to take this story, but we can literally say, poor Rebecca in that moment. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. Immediately, we get a sense of how dysfunctional this new family of four really is. Because first of all, the first two, of course, are Jacob and Esau, and they spend most of their lives just scrapping together, wrestling against each other, constantly at war, because they knew the tradition. They knew that the older of the two, Esau, was the one who, by Israelite tradition, was entitled to receive the birthright, the one who would have the privilege of carrying on the family name, the family legacy, the family heritage, the family wealth, the family prestige, all would go to the kid who was born on top. And so they wrestled about that. Isaac wasn't perfect either. Isaac in these stories comes across as passive and indifferent. He does very little to try to settle the disputes between his two warring children. And then there's Rebecca, Mother Rebecca, who does the one thing that no parent should do. That mama played favorites. She loved that younger boy a lot better than the older one. And so she wanted her younger son, Jacob, to be the prized inheritor of the birthright. So there you have it. You have favoritism, you have bad parenting, you have sibling rivalries, you have fights over money, you have squabblings over inheritance and fame and prestige, all rolled up into one gloriously unhealthy, dysfunctional family. Don't you feel better about yours now? We find out that when the boys are much older, Rebecca and her son Jacob devise a little scheme to try to get Jacob that birthright. It turns out we know two things. Esau was a very hairy man. We were left to our imagination as to what that meant. And we also find out that Daddy Isaac had very bad eyesight. And so here was the plan. Rebecca and Jacob waited until Esau went out of the house on one of his lengthy hunting expeditions so that Jacob and Isaac would have the house to themselves. And Jacob then got dressed up basically as Bigfoot. <laughs> took a big furry animal, took the skin off the hide and covered his arms with it to show and demonstrate to his daddy, poor blind Isaac, that it was him instead of Isaac. And in the course of that mistaken identity, Jacob tried to convince Isaac to give him the birthright instead. You couldn't write a better screenplay for Days of Our Lives or All My Children, or Game of Thrones for that matter. But here's the deal. The plan worked. And when Esau came home and found out what had happened behind his back, he was furious. So by the time we get to this morning's scripture reading, that sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau had blown up into full-blown war between the two. Jacob has now fled the scene, run away from home with all of his possessions, all of his livestock, all of his family, all of his servants, because he knew that Esau was enraged and coming after him with guns a-blazing. So Jacob did a strategic thing. He divides his entire estate 
All of his possessions, livestock, family, and servants, divides them in half into two separate camps with distance in between them under the assumption that when Esau arrived and attacked, he would only be able to conquer one half of his estate, leaving the other half to survive. That was the plan anyway. Jacob is a thief on the run. He is scared spitless, and he knows what's coming after him. He knows that what Esau is about to do to him is something that he deserves. So he runs away, and he finds himself in a town, a town, a settlement with an interesting name. It's named Menachayim, Menachayim, which in Hebrew means divided. What an appropriate name for a town and the state of Jacob's life in that moment. Because in that Manahayim, Jacob's entire life was divided in half. Not just his literal physical possessions divided in half, but there was division in his relationship with Esau, in his relationship with Isaac, and deep down inside. The greatest division of all was the division within Jacob's own spirit. In that town, Manahayim, Jacob had hit rock bottom. And his prayer in Genesis 32 is a poignant prayer, a powerful one. The first part of that prayer is nothing short of a sinner's prayer, a repentant prayer, a prayer of someone who knows that he had done wrong. Jacob prays, Lord God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, I don't deserve how loyal and truthful you've been to me. I've run away and split my household into two, and I'm afraid of what I've done. Doesn't get more penitent, more remorseful, more anxious than that. But of course, this is still Jacob we're talking about. Jacob the trickster, Jacob the one who's in it for himself, because halfway through that very penitent prayer, the prayer shifts tone, and we see the old Jacob come back. The second half of that prayer goes something like this, oh God, save me and my loved ones from Esau's wrath, and then he says to God, you promised God, you promised that you would make sure that things went well for me. You promised that our descendants would be like the sand of the sea, so many of them that they couldn't be counted. You promised me, God, save me. Talk about a divided prayer, a prayer that is offered in the manahayams of life. Two different kinds of prayers spliced into one. It is here that we discover that in Jacob's life, that deep beneath the divisions that are happening in his relationships, there is a deep division within his spirit exemplified by this prayer, and you and I have been there too. Deep below the surface of our divisions with relationships with other people that we know is the kind of conflicted prayers that we offer in those moments when our souls are torn apart. It's those kinds of prayers that, we, that are filled with such remorse. Have you ever had such deep remorse in a relationship with someone else or a loved one or, or made such a big mistake in your life that you've had such deeply divided feelings? On the one hand, you pray 
because you are scared and you are worried and you're remorseful and you want a mulligan and you wish you could have it all over to do again and you, you wish you could take it all back. But on the other hand, you are also praying that God would intervene and protect you and knock that other guy down a couple notches, if you would, God. Give that guy a little bit of what he deserves. You've prayed those prayers, both of those prayers in one. I have too. Jacob was wrestling deep down. There was a manahayim in his spirit. But you know what? None of that was as big as the greatest wrestling of all. The wrestling that Jacob was doing with God. That's the tough one. You heard it in the scripture passage today. All night, all night long, Jacob was wrestling with an angel, essentially wrestling with God. It's the kind of wrestling that you and I have done with God in our lives. Whenever we question where God is in the midst of a situation, whenever we wonder why God could possibly allow some things to happen, why God wouldn't just step in to prevent certain things from happening, it is the prayer that we ask of God to simply show us some sign, just give us some kind of glimpse, God, that you're here and that you care and that you can do something. That's the kind of wrestling that we do with God. And when we do, we feel guilty, don't we? We feel, how in the world could we be so presumptuous for making that kind of request? But on the other hand, we totally get where Jacob is coming from with both halves of that prayer. If you have ever wrestled with God in this way, and especially if you are wrestling with God in that way right now, then I'd suggest to you that there are two important nuggets of wisdom that this story can offer you and me today. And the first is this. As it turns out, wrestling with God is okay. Wrestling with God is okay. It is literally in the roots of our family heritage. Because as a result of wrestling with God, Jacob was changed forever, not just spiritually, but even in his identity. Because after wrestling with God, he was no longer Jacob, the great trickster and wrestler and thief, that angel changed his name from Jacob to Israel, the name that would forever be affixed to his descendants, the name that still exists today. And what does that name Israel mean? It means one who wrestles with God. Think about that. The great ancestor of our convictions, the great forerunner of our own faith, is the one whose name literally means one who wrestles with God. It is now embedded into our DNA that to have faith means that it's okay to wrestle over uncertainties. It doesn't mean that we have to have everything figured out. It does not mean that we have to demand that God speak to us in our own terms, on our own timeline. It does not mean that we are equal to God, but it simply means that wrestling permits us to have an intimate relationship with that God, that we can now approach the very personal presence of God and ask the questions that we didn't think we were allowed to ask. Remember, when was the moment that God finally blessed Jacob? 
God did not bless Jacob until Jacob had the gall to ask for God's name, the most personal, most intimate question of all. And it was after he wrestled and had that kind of intimate experience with God that Jacob was finally blessed. By the way, the name of that town where they were wrestling, that Manahayim that was called Divided, that went through a change too as a result of that wrestling. After that moment, Jacob changed the name of Manahayim to a town called Peniel. And what does Peniel mean in Hebrew? It means face to face with God. For any of us who are experiencing division with other people or within our own spirit or especially with God, that kind of wrestling enables us to have a personal, intimate approach to the very presence of God face to face. But there's a second and I think even more important lesson that this story teaches us today. It's the game changer that's introduced into this story, which brings us back to where this sermon began. The very next day, Esau did show up. He showed up with 400 soldiers. And as it turns out, God had been wrestling with Esau too. Jacob came up to him, scared, anticipating the worst, not knowing that at the very same time that Jacob was wrestling with God, Esau had been too, and he had emerged a very different person. We don't know the details of how Esau wrestled with God. We only know about what Jacob did, but it's clear that there was some wrestling there too because Esau had been transformed. At that very moment when Esau and Jacob locked eyes from a distance, this is what Genesis 33 says happened next. Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him and wept. You know why? Because for the first time, for the first time in the book of Genesis, in the first time in the history of our family tree, because of the wrestling that humans did with God, God introduced the concept of forgiveness, and that was a game changer. Something was introduced into the roots of our family tree. Forgiveness in that moment was spliced into the very roots of our heritage, and it would forever offer its own DNA to every ensuing offspring and progeny for the rest of humankind, leading up to the most penultimate act of forgiveness, another kind of tree, a tree that would stand centuries later proudly on Golgotha's hill in the form of God himself who would come to us in Jesus to offer forgiveness for the world, a forgiveness that would first be offered between two warring brothers, between two acts of wrestling by an older brother whose life had been transformed. Relationships can be challenging, and it has been that way since the roots of our family tree. But in this story, forgiveness is introduced, 
in a way that would change the course of that family forever. You know the next story that happens after Jacob and Esau? It's the story of Joseph. It's the story of Joseph and his awful, irrational brothers that winds up the entire book of Genesis. And what happens at the end of that story? Yep, forgiveness. Jacob forgives his brothers. And where, perhaps, did Joseph learn to forgive in that way? Maybe, I'd like to imagine, he learned it from his uncle Esau, who chose not to give his daddy what he deserved. As much as we might praise Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph as the four patriarchs of the faith, I think Esau is really the unsung hero of our heritage because he's the one to introduce a kind of forgiveness that you and I can practice today. In just a few moments, we're going to be coming forward down here to the baptismal font, joining with Christians all around the world in this baptism of the Lord's Sunday, which we observe every second Sunday of the year. And you and I come into this place with a lot of manahayim, a lot of divisions in our lives, literal divisions with loved ones, deep divisions and conflict with our own spirit, and even wrestling with God. Come with those divisions in this moment. And may the touching of that water move you from Manahayim to Peniel so that in that moment you can experience the intimacy of God face to face so that God can say to you the very same words that God said to Jesus at the moment of his own baptism, I love you and I am very proud of you. May that moment bring healing, introduce forgiveness, reconcile your spirit, bring you closer to God, and draw you into intimacy with others. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these powerful stories and for the one that we are living now, the one that calls us to remember our own baptism and that reminds us that any divisions that we feel and experience are no match for the healing power of your grace. Help us to experience and receive that forgiveness and then to be conduits of that reconciliation with others. We thank you for the waters of your grace, for our own baptisms, for which we are very grateful. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and let all God's people say, Amen. In a few moments, we'll be inviting you forward to remember your baptism. To prepare for that, we invite you to offer the fullness of your life as we receive this morning's tithes and offerings, the full commitment of your life and your spiritual practices, your prayer cards, and your estimate of giving cards for this year. With great gratitude, we invite the ushers to come forward as we wait upon you.